0: Uh, Well, I hope that you've been having a good new year. Uh, Mine has been spent so far ripping out uh, a part of a house that we bought that Emily had to have. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, so anybody that wants to come over and help any point in time, uh, I'll give you keys like I gave my in-laws this weekend, um, and, and we are more than willing to, to have you paint or clean windows or do whatever it is. Uh, just come talk to Emily or me, and, and we'd love for you to do that. So that's how my New Year's uh, been spent so far. Uh, with... It being the new year, we do want to start a new series. Um, the series that we've uh, decided to start is called Jesus Uncensored. Um, basically, what we want to do is we want to look some at some of the difficult teachings uh, that Jesus talks teaches us in his life. Uh, a lot of times, uh, I think we look at Jesus and we think, Oh, that's great what you're saying, and we love it. But then he says something that actually is really difficult for us to understand uh, and and actually apply. And we're like, you know what? Maybe Jesus taught something different. Maybe he meant something different. Uh, There's a guy by the name of Adam Ford. uh, And Adam Ford has a little comic strip. Uh, You can go to his website, Adam4D, Ford. Yeah, I got that. Uh, 4D. uh, And you can look at all these comics. It pops up every once in a while on my Facebook, and I'll spend... 20 to 30 minutes reading all his comic strips because I think they're spot on more often than not. Uh, if you're using the Uversion Live app, you can see uh, one of those comic strips. So uh, that's a little bonus incentive. Don't get stuck on it because uh, you need to hear this sermon. Uh, <coughs> But uh, one of his comics is called uh, Jesus, Paul, and the Theological Liberal. And basically how the comic strip goes is uh, you, you have Jesus and he's saying something. It's a direct quotation from the Bible. Uh, Adam Ford will even put the, the quotation where it's at. Uh, and, and then you, as Jesus is finishing up whatever it is that he's saying, that is kind of a tough saying, uh, in comes the theological liberal. And he says, no, 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 Jesus... You need to stop for a second. And then the theological liberal will say, I know that it sounded like Jesus was saying this, but this is really what Jesus was saying. Uh, And so he tries to re-explain. Uh, the tough saying of Jesus. Uh, and then then you have Paul, Paul says something, it's a direct quotation from his letters, uh, and then comes the theological liberal at the end saying, Paul, sheesh, just just be quiet, let me handle this. And he explains uh, what Paul was trying to say that's not as difficult for us to understand. And I think Adam Ford is right on with this comic, uh, because I think it's what we do a lot of times. Uh, we read about uh, Jesus and some of the things that he says, and we say, you know what, Jesus Jesus really didn't mean that in that way that it sounds like he meant. Uh, When in reality, yeah, Jesus really meant what he said. And and that's something that I think we have to understand. And and so this series, that's what we want to kind of get to. We want to get to the understanding that Jesus, when he taught things, he did it in a particular way because he knew that we need to radically change our lives. You know, if our lives look no different than the moment we accepted Christ and were baptized into him, then we missed something. All right? we we missed what it means to be a follower of God, what it means to be a Christian. We are meant to change the way in which we live because the way in which we used to live was sinful and it was not according to God's plan. And if we look like the rest of the world, then we're missing out on what Jesus is teaching us. And so I think that that's kind of where we're going with this. And so my New Year's resolution for you guys to accept uh, is that we we can read the words of Jesus and that our lives can be radically changed more and more into the person that we are supposed to be, uh, the holy people that God has called us to be. And so to help you with that, I want to pick out five different sayings that Jesus says that sometimes, uh, although we may say we believe it, we don't always take it to heart, and it doesn't necessarily affect the way in which we live. And so I'm going to help you out in this New Year's resolution, uh, and I hope that you guys uh, can take it up and personally. Uh, we're going to mostly be in the book of Matthew uh, during this series. Uh, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, um, and so if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to uh, stop looking at the comic strips, Liz. I was <laughs> just messing with you. Uh, and and uh, open up the, oh, on the phone, I put a comic strip on there. So I was just messing with her. She really oh, she really was. See? <laughs> All right, now we're getting back to the Bible portion of things. So I knew it was a bad idea to do that, but I thought it would be cute. So Matthew chapter 16, uh, we're going to start in verse 13. Um, and so, uh, that's kind of where we're going to use to set the scene. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, there are a few Bibles in front of you, would love for you to follow. Uh, Matthew thir- 16, verse 13, uh, reads like this. Uh, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, and I kind of want us to stop right there because I want us to uh, look at this as the scene. Uh A lot of times when we read books, when we write books in the Western mindset, uh, if we're writing it about a person's life, uh, we do it linear, right? We'd start with their birth, uh, who their parents were, and all that fun stuff. We'd maybe talk a little bit about their early childhood, late childhood, uh, but mainly we want to get to what they're doing, and we do it in a linear process. So this is what happened, and then this was what happened, and then this is what happened. All right, Matthew is not written in that way, shape, or shape. At all. Okay. Uh, Matthew is an Eastern person uh, and he's written for the Eastern mindset uh, for them. Uh, he, he's going to use themes. Matthew is going to use themes. And so uh, Matthew chapter 16 kind of serves not as a uh, time frame. We, we don't necessarily know if this was the beginning, the end, the middle It's probably somewhere in, in between those those two, the beginning and the end. All right. And uh, uh, he's just kind of using it as a bookmark okay uh, a bookend uh, the for, since chapter 4 of Matthew until this chapter in chapter 16 uh, we are talking about the public ministry of Jesus in the region of Galilee all right Jesus is going to be talking to people he's talking to crowds all right he's talking uh, to, to to everybody that's not a disciple uh, in that that section, All right, but this—this this, what we're going to read today serves as the end of that. All right, he's done talking to the public ministry. Now we're going to go to the private ministry that is, that Jesus had with his disciples, and much of what takes place after Matthew 16 is to his disciples and his disciples alone. All right, and when we talk about his public ministry, again, it's not a linear idea. All right, Matthew chapter 13 is a very good example. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 is called the kingdom parables chap- chapter. And in that chapter, there's a number of different parables uh, about the kingdom of heaven. All right? And it doesn't necessarily mean because they're all in chapter 13 that Jesus sat there and on one day told all of these different parables. All right? Probably what happened was it's all the parables that he told about the kingdom put into one chapter. Alright, that's just how uh, that mindset works. Alright, and so this is this is just kind of a little background information into Matthew. Uh, Matthew here uh, talks about Jesus going to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Alright, this uh, is a different place than his normal ministry. Alright, most of Jesus's ministry is done to the Jews. Uh, it's done in the region of Galilee or in the region of Judea. Uh, there's a little section uh, that he does ministry in Samaria, and a couple of times he goes outside. This is one of those times where he's going outside to a Gentile region, but he's not necessarily doing ministry. He's talking to his disciples. All right, for him to move into this Gentile region, it meant that all the crowds that are suffocating him, if you will, uh, are now away because they're not traveling up there with him. All right, so Jesus is alone with his disciples, and he wants to get alone uh, because he needs to He needs to make sure that they're all on the same page, that they understand uh, what uh, Jesus is doing, That making sure that they can grasp uh, what Jesus is trying to accomplish. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is actually an interesting town. Uh, It's an ancient town. Uh, It it is the center of a lot of religious activities. In the region of Caesarea Philippi, uh, they have found no less than 14 different temples to the Syrian god Baal. Baal was that one God that the Israelites constantly were turning away from God and towards him uh, during the Old Testament period. And so this city seems to be an activity hub of of that type of worship so it's an ancient pagan worship uh, within the area of Caesarea Philippi there was this big tall mountain and this tall mountain had a cavern all right and when the Greeks came and took over and they discovered this cavern they decided that this was the birthplace of their earth god Pan all right and they they called the place Panium all right and, and they, in honor of this and so the Greeks uh, had great reverence uh, for this region of the world as well uh, that same cavern had a, a, a water source and that water source actually uh, is the headwaters for the Jordan River. And so the Jews, for the Jews, the Jordan River uh, gave them all kinds of different information. Uh, it gave them all kinds of different memories. Uh, and so they had great reverence for this place as well because this is the start of the Jordan River, the east, the eastern boundaries of their own country. Uh, this is where God did all kinds of and crazy things, all right? And so that's that's kind of this town It not only has uh, pagan roots, not only does it have Greek roots, but the Jews had great reverence for it as well. And then we get to the name. See, that name originally was Panium, uh, but then it got changed to Caesarea Philippi, all right? And Caesarea uh, is just a, an honorary name uh, in honor of Caesar, all right? And, and what happened was Herod the Great, uh, he decided that when he got placed in charge of this region of the world, that he was going to build a temple to Caesar, to honor Caesar. and So he built this temple on this big mountain, uh, and and, uh, his son came along after him and beautified this temple to Caesar, and he changed the name to Caesarea, and Philippi distinguishes it from all the other Caesareas in the Roman world at this time. So there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of religious influence that are behind this town. And so Jesus brings them to this town, and in the shadow of this town, he wants them to think about what is going on. All right, So he's going to ask a question uh, in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew. Go ahead and go one more there, Thomas. All right, And, and this is what he is going to ask. He says uh, to his disciples, he asks them, who do, you say, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. All right, so Jesus is going to ask a question about himself. He, he uses this term son of man throughout the Matthew uh, t- for himself. It is a term that does not have baggage. All right? It has no theological baggage for them. And what I mean by that is sometimes you know that words, they just have baggage, right? You, you, you say it, and instantly you th- have a negative or a positive thought, when I think of the Colts, it's positive. All right? When I think of the Chiefs, it's negative. All right? It's a baggage thing. <laughs> it's a baggage thing. We, and we have words like that. You know, uh, Nuclear power uh, was a baggage thing in the 90s, you know, in the late 80s as well. You know? <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I know Jim works at a nuclear power plant, and it's good for him. It's a positive thing. It's a source of income, right? All right? And, but like you had Chernobyl in the mid-80s. All right, and you saw all those researches about the two-headed frogs and all those other things, and nuclear power was a, had negative baggage associated with it. All right, and so sometimes you have words and ideas and phrases that are just full of baggage. All right, Son of Man is not one of those. It has no baggage with it. All right, and so Jesus is using it for himself because it has no baggage. And he's able to ask the question, what are people saying about the son of man? And he's going to get an honest response because there's no preconceived ideas of what it is. And their responses are impressive. Uh, they say John the Baptist. Right, John was Jesus's cousin. It's the guy that baptized him. Uh, It's the guy that started his ministry. Uh, He had a very successful ministry. People came from all over uh, Judea to John to repent of their sins, to turn back to God. It was a very successful ministry, and John eventually uh, was beheaded because of his ministry. Uh, Then you also have Elijah. And Elijah is the pinnacle of the Old Testament prophets. All right, this was the guy that ha- displayed a lot of power in God. This is what everybody, if you were talking about a prophet, your mental image was Elijah for them. All right, and so these people are saying, you're like Elijah. Uh, they were saying Jeremiah. Right, Jeremiah is kind of a strange one. All right, But if you, in this list at least, because John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, something doesn't look quite the same. All right, Jeremiah, if you understand the... Intertestamental period, the period of history between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it makes a lot more sense. There was a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. Uh, who led a revolt against the Greeks that were ruling over the Jews at the time. And before one of the great battles, he had a vision of Jeremiah coming and giving him a golden sword. And he went, he won the battle. And so Jeremiah became associated with someone who, who was a forerunner of the Messiah. All right, And so they're, so, so they're saying, these are the people that you're, you're like. So what are they saying when they say that? Who do they say I am? Well, you're Elijah or John the Baptist. What are they talking about? What they're not talking about is reincarnation. Right, reincarnation is not a biblical idea, it doesn't happen, all right? our previous life, there's no such thing as that, all right? we are who we are, all right? and so uh, that's not what we're talking about, it doesn't even make sense here, all right? John the Baptist and Jesus, they're contemporaries, they're born six months apart, all right? so reincarnation does not make sense in this, in this, in this way. Alright, so what we're talking about isn't reincarnation. What we're talking about is uh, the, the, they're of, of the same vein. They're the same spirit behind them. Alright, they, they are in the same grouping, if you will. Uh, it's the, uh, the greatest of all time argument, right? Who is the greatest of all quarterbacks? Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, John Elway, Johnny Unitas, Brett Favre. Okay, Forget the Pittsburgh guys. They weren't that good. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to go. Anyway, you guys are getting me off track here. Okay. <laughs> it's the greatest of all time question, okay? And and so they're saying you are like the greatest of all the prophets. Jesus, you're just another one of these groupings of guys. You are it's a great compliment, if anything else. They're asking them uh, he's asking them who do they say I am? They're, you're just like one of these other really really good guys. Right? They're, you're one of the greatest. All right. And, and so that's really what what the what they're saying and what they're asking. It's a high compliment. All right. But Jesus isn't there to figure out what everybody else is saying. Jesus already knows what they're saying. And so he's here to ask about the disciples. OK. And so that's what he's going to do in verse 15. He says, what about you guys? You know what? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter uh, answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And And as you read as I read this, I kind of just feel that pause. Do you feel it? You know, it's one thing to talk about what other people think about somebody, uh, but it's something different to talk about what you think about that person, right? Uh, unless, unless you're very vocal, um, and some people are, all right? But most of us, we, we hesitate. Well, this is, you know, you know Joe over here, he says this about you. Well, what do you think? I, I, mean, I mean, you don't want to hurt their feelings, do you? I mean, that's a lot of times what happens. So I feel this pause, and Simon gets the courage to say, you know what, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And what he's saying, and this is a huge statement, he's saying you're more than just a prophet. You're more than just one of these other great guys. You are the one we're looking for. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are the Son of the living God. You're above them all. And this is a turning point in Matthew all right, before this, Matthew doesn't talk about Jesus the Messiah. No one verbalizes it. All right, there, there's some commentary that Matthew writes himself, All right, but no one is verbalizing that he is the Messiah. And this is the turning point. This is where he finally reveals himself to, to his disciples. All right, and he'll, he'll go on from here on out talking to them about what it means for to be the Messiah, what it means that he's going to do compared to what everybody thought he was going to do. And that's what the rest of the book of Matthew is about. All right, but this is the turning point. And then we get to the controversial statement that it's a tough statement for us to read sometimes, and sometimes I don't think we always believe it. All right, and so what we're going to do is we're going to read it, we're going to talk about the issues behind it, uh, and then we're going to talk about how we can apply it to our lives. And so here's what Jesus says in response uh, to Simon's confession in verse, 20, or verse 17. He says, "'Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter.' And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. All right, So uh, there's a couple of things in here we have to understand. The first is uh, Jesus uh, uh, kind of explains why he's been calling Simon Peter. All right, Simon was his birth name. I want to pick on Bernie again today. Uh, Simon's his birth name. All right, and, and Peter uh, is the name that Jesus was calling him. All right, Bernie, if you've ever met him, which most of you probably have, uh, he comes up to the women and he says, hey, Ethel. And, and he does it on purpose. And it's always Ethel. It's not something else. It's always Ethel, as far as I remember. And he's doing it because he's trying to get you to know their names, okay? Uh, And that's why I kind of picture here. Not because Jesus doesn't know Simon's name, but he just wants to give him a different name. I had a professor in college, uh, one of my favorite professors. His name was Doctor Dole. He lived up to his name from time to time. All right, and for the first semester of Greek class that I had with him, uh, he called me Mister Baxter. I have no idea why he called me Mr. Baxter. And it wasn't until that next year that I took Greek with him again that he finally said Mr. Maxwell. All right? But that's just who he was. I think it was some humor thing because right? my grades came back okay. He knew who I was. He just called me Mr. Baxter. All right? And so that's what I kind of picture here is, is Jesus, he just said, oh, you're not Simon, you're Peter. He just gives Peter a new name. And here he kind of explains why he's been doing that. He says that you are Peter. You're rock. Peter literally means rock. He is the original rock, not Mr. Dwayne Johnson. This Peter guy is. And and this might seem a little weird that we call people a rock, but in the Old Testament, this God calls himself a rock. He says, I am the rock. All right, and and, and, and it's, this, it's a compliment all right, that's happening. The rabbis uh, write in this time frame about Abraham being a rock. All right, and so it's a compliment. Like Jesus getting complimented by being called John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. P- Jesus is giving Peter a compliment. You are a rock. And then he talks about building his church upon a rock. And there's four different ideas out there. And we've got to talk about it because we need to understand really what Jesus is saying. I want to make sure that we get all the preconceived ideas out there. All right, uh, so there's four different ideas of what Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm going to build my church upon this rock. Uh, the first one uh, comes from a guy by the name of Augustine. Uh, he was a, a great theologian in the late 4th century, early 5th century uh, A.D. And, and Augustine said that the rock that Jesus was talking about was Jesus himself. All right, he said, uh, it would sound like this. He said, Peter, you are a rock, and upon this rock, talking about Jesus, I'm going to build my church. All right, So that's one idea. It's a good idea. All right, the second idea uh, comes from Protestants, uh, and, and they're talking about uh, the confession that Peter's just made. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That confession is the rock. And so what they're saying is, your name is Peter, and this idea and understanding of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that is the rock that I'm going to build my church upon. Again, another uh, good idea uh, that maybe is true. All right, the, the third one comes from the Roman Catholics, and it is not true at all. And this is the idea that Peter is the rock, and all the power that is suddenly invested in Peter in this, in this verse, that is the rock. And everybody that comes after Peter, that's a bishop of Rome, also called the pope, he is the rock that the church is built upon. All right, and so this, is, this doesn't make sense grammatically. The other ones can kind of be okay. Okay. All right. Uh, the last one is the linguistic uh, idea uh, that makes the most sense, and that is that Peter is the rock, all right, but not in the sense that he has special power, but in the sense that he's going to be the steward of the kingdom that opens it up for everybody. And when we look at the Bible, we can see that that's what happens. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, uh, upon the apostles, and they start to speak in tongues, and they go out, and a bunch of people come, and and they say they're drunk, and Peter is the guy that stands up and says, no, we're not drunk, this is Jesus, and he tells the the gospel to them. You know, he's the one that's the first one that gets to do that. How cool would that be? Uh, Acts chapter 10, uh, we meet a guy by the name of Cornelius, he's a Gentile, and, and it's Peter that goes to him and tells him about Jesus and introduces the gospel to those who are not Jews, and it's Peter that opens up the gates of heaven for them, all right, and so maybe that's the makes the most sense, you know, it's, it's one of those three minus the Roman Catholic idea, all right, and, and that's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about building his church upon the rock. Now, Uh, This is the last thing that I want to talk about is this idea that I think we don't really believe. It's this idea what Peter says after this. I'm going to build my church on the rock, and uh, the gates of Hades will never overcome it. I don't think that we truly believe that. I think when we look at our lives and we live our lives out, we are afraid of the gates of Hades. We're afraid. I mean, we, we look at the statistics that say that uh, those who are not associating with any religious group was on the rise in America. Uh, we look in the pews, and 20 years ago, we saw that we had over 300 people here on a regular s- Sunday, uh, and those numbers are de- have declined in, since that time, and we're afraid. Uh, you know, are afraid of what our church is going to become. We're afraid of, of who's going to to come to our church, and we, are, we allow fear to grip us and to control what we do as an individual and as a church. And so I want to talk about this idea of the gates of Hades and why we shouldn't fear it. We shouldn't fear it because Jesus says they will never overcome. But what is Jesus talking about? The gates uh, is a great word picture that Jesus is using. It can mean a number of different things. And I think we fear the gates of Hades in in a number of different ways. Uh, One way is uh, talking about the gates as representing a fortress. You know, when he's at Caesarea Philippi, there's probably a fortress on the mountain. And he's probably underneath that mountain. He's saying the gates of Hades will not overcome. And he's pointing to that mountain to make them have that mental image of power. And there's a spiritual war going on. And sometimes I think we get afraid that if our church dies, that Satan somehow has won. Right? And, and if our church here at Kentucky Road uh, were to disappear, we would be, we're afraid that that means that Satan has conquered Mexico, Missouri. And we live our lives in that fear. But Jesus said the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Our church is... The church that Jesus is establishing, it's bigger than our church. It's bigger than those who are here. And it's going to continue even long after we're gone. And we cannot allow fear to control our lives in that way. Another idea of gates uh, is the idea of governments. All right? and, and when we look at this idea, we see that the gates was where the elders of the Jewish city resided. And if people had to go for uh, business transactions, if they had to go uh, f- for judicial issues, they went to the gates of the city, and that's where everything that dealt with the city was dealt at with. All right? That's where they went to figure things out. And sometimes gates mean governments, and we should not be afraid of what the government may do to us. See, the thing is, is America is no different than any other government of this world. While it's ordained by God to rule, it is still influenced by the prince of this world, the devil. And so if the government decides one day to actually persecute the church, we should not be surprised by that. Jesus said it was going to happen. We cannot uh, have this image that America is some great country that we need to worship as much as God. There's going to come a day where they're going to be done with us. And we cannot allow fear of the persecution that might come to influence how we live. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. And no matter what they do to us, no matter what laws are passed, no matter what they say we have to do, it should not affect how we live. We are called to live a holy life. And if that's in opposition of the governments, so be it. We're called to live for God, not for anybody else. And we need to understand that the gates of Hades will not destroy us as a church body. The last idea of gates of Hades is, is what gates represent, what they do. All right? Gates keep people in, they keep people out, they're a barrier. And when we think about the idea of Hades in the Jewish mindset, it was death. And death in general, not necessarily death, uh, uh, not necessarily hell in the way we think Hades is hell. All right, but death where everyone goes. And what Jesus maybe is saying here is, is death has no hold on us. The death has no hold on the church. We have a person that came who died and death could not hold its grasp on him. And so as a church people, we should not fear death. There's nothing to fear, because there's going to come a day where we burst forth the gates of Hades, and we come back to life, and we're with God for eternity. As a church body, we should not fear dying if, if, if it's God's will that we die. You now, most of the churches in the New Testament that we're talking about, they no longer exist. John will write a letter to seven different churches, and every single one of those churches are dead. But their legacy isn't, and the church continues. And so maybe what Jesus is saying here is that church will never die once it's established. And it doesn't matter if it's maybe our little congregation that does, our legacy should continue on. And maybe that's what it is. The thing I do know is this, is too often we allow fear of Hades, of the gates of Hades, to control what we're doing as a church body, what we're doing as individuals. We allow that fear to impact our decision-making. And when we allow the fear to impact our decision-making, we oftentimes cause our fears to become reality. When we fear the church dying, we do things to keep people out for some reason. I don't understand it, but we do it. We hate change. We don't want things to change, and so we make no changes, and we die. And it's what happens. But that's not what we're called to do. We're not called to live in fear. We're called to cast fear out. John will say it in 1 John four eighteen. It says, perfect love casts out fear. And the way we get over fear in our lives is by loving people, by loving those who are in the church, even when we hate what they're doing, by loving those in the church who, who we can't even stand being around. We're called to love them. We're called to love those who are outside of the church because they need to know the love of God. And the only way they know the love of God is if we show it to them. We're called to love even the vilest of sinners. Even if they're cutting off people's heads, we're called to love them. That's terrible for us. We hate that mindset. But that is what we're called to do. We're called not to allow fear of the gates of Hades to destroy us, but we're called to love. And the way we cast out fear is through love. So for you this year, will you make a resolution not to, to live in fear, but to go out into this world to love on people that need your love, that need to know about the love of God. And will you live your life with the belief that the gates of Hades cannot overcome you because you have the power of Christ inside you? Can we do that? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are Amazed by all that you did for us. We're amazed by your glory and your greatness, uh, that you established a church in which the gates of Hades could never overcome. Lord, sometimes we don't always understand uh, what that means, but Lord, we know that uh, despite what it looks like in this world, we have not lost the war, we have won it already. I just pray, God, that we can have courage and strength to stand up against whatever is thrown our way, and that we will be proud witnesses of you and all that you've done. I ask these things in your name. Amen.